What a real and raw and honest story and video. And you know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a lot of books, Christian guy. He said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. We often don't hear him. That he speaks to us every day, but he often uses a megaphone in our pain. And what you just heard there is a story of walking with God through pains and problems and pressures, which are gonna happen to all of us. What we say here is that all you have to do is live long enough and love enough people. And eventually what comes into your life is a storm. We talked about that the last few weeks. And we said, look, there are financial storms, right? I lost my job, inflation's killing me. I went bankrupt. There are relational storms. I found out something about my spouse. There's been betrayal, there's been distrust, there's been divorce. There are physical storms, you heard that. I, illness and injury came to my door or the door of somebody that I love. There are mental and emotional storms. I, there's anxiety and there's depression. And we wanna say a couple things real quick. Because I think I'd be remiss not to say this, that when you see someone in a storm, it's never a sin to be in a storm. And there's never any shame in being in a storm, no matter how you got in there. It's like, I'm in a storm. And so what we wanna do here is if you right now, if you're in the midst of a storm, maybe not that storm, maybe it's not a physical storm, it's some other type of storm. We just wanna communicate, we love you and we wanna pray for you. So listen, if you're going through a storm, would you just stand right now? We wanna pray for you, just stand up wherever you are. Thank you, thank you. Around this room, thank you, thank you. We don't know what storm you're going through. Here's what we wanna communicate. We wanna communicate that what we do in prayer is we pray with people and we pray for people. So we're gonna do that together. We're gonna pray as a church. In a minute, I'm, when I pray, you and extend your hands. And we're gonna pray for multiple things for God to do. Cause I don't know what what's you're going through exactly in your life. But we're gonna transfer the burden to God in prayer. And we believe Christianity is a supernatural faith. We believe that when man works, man works. But when man prays, God works. So let's pray together. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for the men and women in here who we see that video. And it's just a reminder that life is hard. Like we just said, Lord, as we love people and as we live longer, suffering comes into our lives. And some people in this room, they are just like the disciples last week in the boat. They, it's the fourth watch of the night and they have been in this storm for months or years. And that's the hard thing about a storm. We don't often know when it's going to pass and how it's going to pass, Lord. And so Jesus, just like you're with the disciples, we pray you'd be with them in the storm. We pray you would bring a comfort. The apostle Paul talks about in times of difficulty, there being both comfort and peace. And he says, there's a peace that transcends all understanding. It doesn't make sense to the world based on the circumstances. We pray that for them. We pray for them to have the supernatural strength to do what you said in this area, Lord. Lord, if, if, if this is the right call, we pray for them to grieve. It's not a sin to grieve. It's not wrong to grieve. Christians grieve. The Bible says that we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So because of the gospel, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the word of God, we continue to believe. We are, every Christian is an eternal optimist. We believe the future is bright. We wanna come alongside these people right now and we pray you would bring the help and the hope and the healing of Jesus to them. We pray this in his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, guys, welcome. Welcome to Two Cities Church. You can type to or you can turn to Mark chapter seven, okay? Now, by the way, when you're turning there or typing there, look around the room. I want you to see how crowded it is in here. I want you to see how crowded it is in the lobby. And I want you to remember that we have a Saturday night service, right? I know, other people should go to Saturday nights, right? Yes, we'd love to have you. I know it's college football season and all that, but it is unbelievably crowded in here. And if we don't have a seat for someone, we don't have a place for someone. If we don't have a place for someone, we can't invest in them. So uh, type two, turn to Mark chapter seven. We've been following Jesus. I mean, that's what the Christian life's about. That's what we're doing in the gospel, Mark. If you're new, your friend invited you, you're a seeker, you're a skeptic, you're checking out Christianity, welcome. One of the things that you might find interesting about Christianity is that the center of Christianity is not a place or practices or principles, but it's a, it's a person, it's Jesus. He's the very center of the gospel of Mark. And so when we're looking through Mark, it's like, it's all about Jesus, right? You could call, that's what we could have called this series. It's all about Jesus, I mean, that's what it is. So he's walking through the gospel and there's only two passages in all of Mark that don't deal directly with, well, watching Jesus, right? Every other passage is he's healing and he's teaching and he's helping and he's discipling and um, he's preaching. And, and then we have two passages where Jesus isn't mentioned and it's, they're about John the Baptist and he's talking about Jesus. So those also count, okay? So the whole book is basically all about Jesus. And one of the interesting things about Jesus is as we're watching him teach and preach and heal, and that's a good way to think about his ministry. He had a teaching ministry for the mind. He had a preaching ministry for the soul. He had a healing ministry for the body. So as he has this ministry, he continues to be more controversial and more confusing to everybody, right? So what happens is there's really a good way to think about this. There's kind of like three groups of people that start to come around Jesus. First, there's the followers and they're great. I mean, they're like, I mean, they got, they're spiritually dull and they've got their ups and downs and they've got their doubts, but these are the disciples and there's not many of them. 
So when you look at the followers of Jesus, like one time we're told there's 12, like another time we're told there's 70 or 72, and like another time we're told there's 120, it's like, that's it. And then he's got lots of fans, right? That's the crowds. They show up, they like a free meal, a Hebrew Lunchable, right? Remember that? They, they, they like the free healthcare. They like to be entertained. They like interesting teaching. They like a good TED talk. And so they show up, okay? And then there are the foes, right? Followers, fans, foes. Who are the foes? The religious people today. I, I just have to keep saying it. The, the people that we thought, oh, oh man, they're gonna love Jesus, don't love Jesus. The people that we think are gonna get Jesus, they don't get Jesus. The, the ministers, the pastors, the spiritual leaders of that day are the people who are most confused by and angry at Jesus. So let's look at it. Verse one, we'll check it out. I want you to see today the foes show back up. Here's what it says. Now, when the Pharisees, okay, we'll talk about them in a second. They gathered to him with some of the scribes. They like to hang out together, okay? It, who had come from Jerusalem. So they're in Capernaum. They come from Jerusalem. I mean, guys, that's 90 or 100 miles. I know for you, that's an hour and a half, you know, maybe hour and 45 minute drive. For this, this is multiple days journey. So these two groups of people, they, they travel a long way to see Jesus. Now we gotta talk about the Pharisees and the scribes, but do you remember the third category that's missing? The third group of people, they always kind of are with the scribes and the Pharisees, but they're kind of separate. The Sadducees, right? Now this is interesting to know. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this and this is gonna be helpful for the rest of the sermon. Um, but what happens in religion and politics, there's some similarities, okay? What happens in religion and politics is that across time, this happens everywhere you eventually get a conservative group and you eventually get a liberal group. So across time, it's the Republicans and it's the Democrats. If you go to the Jews, you ever see an Orthodox Jew? I mean, that would be the conservative arm of Judaism. Whenever I'm at a large international airport, I like to sneak over to the flights that are heading to Tel Aviv and I just like to look at all the Orthodox Jews. I know it's a little weird, but that's what I do. And you see, okay, then when I was at Duke, I constantly, I felt like 30 or 40%, I think of Duke University is Jewish. And I, and I met what they call themselves reformed Jews. I'm like, well, you don't, you're not wearing the hat and you don't got the beard and you don't got the curls, what's going on? And I'm, oh, we're going to celebrate Yom Kippur. You are, how are you gonna celebrate Yom Kippur? I'm gonna get drunk with my family. Hmm, I don't think that's biblical. <laughs> I don't think that's the purpose of Yom Kippur. Do you know there's conservative Muslims and there's liberal Muslims? Do you know that the Methodist church right now, or really for the last decade or two has been wrestling this out because the Methodist church, the Methodist denomination, I should say, is an international denomination. Most denominations like the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, well, it's an American denomination. What happened in the Methodist church is you have all the American Methodists have gone theologically liberal and all the international Methodists who live in like Africa, they're like, no, 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 we believe in the Bible. We believe in heaven and hell. We believe in angels and demons. We believe all sex out of heterosexual marriage is sinful. And that denomination is breaking and bending because you have theologically liberals and you have conservative, theological conservatives. What I want you to see today is back then there were the theological conservatives, the Pharisees and the scribes, right? And the scribes, I mean, you think about that. The scribes were the Xerox machines of that day, okay? <laughs> That's what they were. You have to be a pretty serious person to care that much about the Bible to, to get jot and tittle and word right. They were very serious about the word of God. And then you had the Sadducees. And I've told you before, they were the theologically liberals. They didn't believe in heaven and hell. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. There you go, now you know, okay, yeah. So you're like, I still don't get it, Kyle. Let me explain it this way. They would have a coexist sticker and a rainbow flag on the back of their camel, okay? You go, I get it, yep, that's them. So that's who they are. And so what I want you to know is in our church, we are, if you, welcome if you don't know this, we are a theologically conservative church. Um, in other words, we believe in heaven and hell. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe there's a final judgment. We believe in sin and grace. We believe in the need for personal repentance. We believe in a final judgment. We wanna see people personally come to faith in Christ. And we think our job is not to edit the Bible, but to change our heart, minds, and lives underneath the Bible. And so we're a theologically conservative church. Why am I telling you all this? Because what I want us to see is when we read about the Pharisees and scribes, you have to realize like, if you've been in our church for any amount of time or been in a team, tribe, or tradition like ours, the temptation for you across time is to become a Pharisee or a scribe. Because the scribe started off good. Anyone know the first scribe in the Bible? Ezra. Even some of you who don't know your Bible that much, like, I named my kid Ezra. I mean, it sounds good, I can't, right? <laughs> yeah, Ezra was a good guy. Ezra was the first scribe. What happens with, with a lot of religious people is they have mission creep. They have mission drift. 
They start off good. Now, let me tell you how you can become a Pharisee. Two ways, at least. Uh, you become a Pharisee when you're just, your knowledge of the Bible increases and increases and increases, which that's not a bad thing. That's what we want to have, that's what we want to have happen. But when your knowledge of the Bible increases and you start to have a knowledge-based approach only or primarily to Christianity, not an obedience-based approach. The second way that you become a Pharisee oftentimes, this is how they did, is your life starts to get cleaned up and you start to feel pretty good about yourself. Because, right, you, someone, say someone comes to the Christ at Wake Forest you know, University as a freshman. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> stop getting drunk. Okay, get rid, don't say these four-letter words. You know, okay, get rid of the hookup, shack up, breakup culture. Okay, stop lying to my parents about everything. Okay, great. And you get rid of the four or five or six big sins in your life. And then what most of us do the rest of our Christian lives is we learn how to trade in big sins for little sins that are easier to hide. And that's Phariseeism. You can become a Pharisee by caring way too much about secondary and tertiary issues and hobby horses and pet projects and strange doctrines. And you, know, and you, can, you wake up one day, you're like, I don't love anyone anymore. I don't love God. I don't feel anything on the inside, though I'm doing everything right on the outside. So that's our danger. So what I want you to see today, because Jesus is going to show us how to deal with this, I want you to see a conflict with the Pharisees. Look at verse 2. So they come, and it says this. They saw, this is the Pharisees, they saw, verse 2, that some of his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, and by the way, Mark's going to put parentheses here and explain this to us because Mark is writing to a Gentile Greek audience, not a Jewish audience, so he explains the Jewish traditions. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition, that's going to be an important word, of the elders. So they show up and it says that some of Jesus' disciples weren't washing their hands. And I don't know what you're thinking. Some of you go, what's the big deal? I never wash my hands, right? Some of you, someone else shows up in a public restroom, like, oh no, I gotta fake it. I gotta wash my, act like I'm washing my hands for a second, right? <laughs> Pay attention to who's laughing, okay, ready? So, um, yeah. So th this actually, guys, had nothing to do with health, had nothing to do with hygiene. They didn't understand germ theory back then. Um, so th this is not what that's about. Um, what this is interesting about, by the way, you, I want you to notice, is that some of Jesus' disciples washed their hands, some didn't. I'll get into what this is in a second, but we don't know. Was it 210? Was it 66? Was it 75? Was it 84? Who knows? Some of the disciples were getting this in a minute because it was tradition. Jesus said, hey, if this means something, you do it. If this doesn't mean something, you don't do it. So it says, it doesn't say none of his disciples did it. It didn't say all of his disciples did it. Some of them didn't. Now, here's what's happening here. This, uh, they had this idea back then of um, the ceremonial law. Let me explain this. Sorry, put your thinking cap on with me for a little bit. But it's gonna be a little bit more of a technical sermon than normal. So back then there was, God's law was broken into three areas. There's the ceremonial law, there's the civil law, and there's the moral law. This helps understand the Old Testament. Because every once in a while you'll have someone go, really, you believe in the Bible? Why do you eat bacon? You're like, because it's good, you know? <laughs> That's why, and because I'm allowed, to, and I'll tell you why in a second, because there was, there was the moral law. The moral law is summarized in the 10 commandments and applicable for every person in every place for all time. That's the moral law. It's a direct reflection of God's character. Jesus reteaches the moral law primarily through the Sermon on the Mount and in other places. Paul reteaches the moral law. In fact, mostly what Jesus does is deepen and develop, expand and enhance the, all the teachings of the moral law. Then there is the civil law. The civil law was what Israel was under while they were under a king led directly by God called a theocracy for a certain period of time in the Middle East. The people of Israel were under theocracy, so they were under the civil law. There was basically no difference between the church and the state. Uh, and then, and then, then there's the ceremonial law, and that had to do with what we're talking about today: sacrifices, clothing, what you ate, how you washed. And part of the ceremonial law told just the priest. It was in the law, just the priest. Hey, you need to wash your hands, just the priest, before you go into the tabernacle to sacrifice. And they had an extensive thing. They would actually go like this, and then someone else would pour water on them, and then they would go like this, and someone else would pour water, and then they would go like this, and then someone else would pour water. And it was kind of an extensive cleaning ritual. And part of this was because, well, they, they had this idea back then, and we'll talk about this a little bit as we go on, that there were certain things that could defile you. Now, Jesus is going to say he's going to move it from the external to the internal. But they thought, you know, hey, if you touch somebody who died, or an animal that died, you could become unclean. If you had some kind of disorder or discharge, you could be unclean. They even said if you had diarrhea, you could be unclean. Some of you go, I'm unclean. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> there were multiple things that could make you unclean. And, and so what Jesus is going to do here is, it, you know, by the way, let me tell you this. So what happened is a, a command that was given to the priest 
was, ended up being taken by the Pharisees and scribes, and they applied it to everybody, everywhere, for everything. This is part of what happens. But I want you to see the issue, by the way, here is tradition. Do you see that in verse 3? Look, I want me to read it one more time. It says this, For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. By the way, tradition is a key word we're going to focus on. It's used multiple times here. The tradition of the elders, by the way, is what we call today the Mishnah. I told you it's a little more technical today. So the Mishnah was a bunch of conservative rabbis who wrote a commentary on the Old Testament because they were worried about Israel going liberal theologically. So it would be like if, you know, your favorite, I don't know, John Piper and Tim Keller and David Platt, whoever you listen to, if they all got together and they said, let's write a commentary on the whole Bible. And, and, and what happened is it wasn't just a commentary on the Bible, it was also how to live it all out and how to apply it. And so it became called the tradition of the elders. Now, here's what was supposed to happen. The tradition of the elders, which is called the oral tradition, was always supposed to be underneath the written command. Make sense? So there's the written command, and underneath that, what serves it, supports it, submits to it, is the oral tradition. What had happened is it went like this, and then it went like this. And so watch what Jesus says in verse 5, or verse 4, I'm sorry. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other, here is that word again, traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, and of, even look at this, dining couches. Um, okay, so we need to talk about tradition for a while. This is going to be an interesting conversation for us to have together. Uh, because tradition, you know, if I ask you, is tradition a good thing or is tradition a bad thing? The answer is, well, it just depends, right? So what is tradition? Let me, let me talk about it this way. Uh, tradition is a good thing in that it lets you know what to expect and it lets you know how to act. Like every home has traditions, right? If every night you ate in a different part of the house, it'd be anxiety causing. Tonight we're eating on the floor. Why? Right, I mean, traditions are part of what regulate your emotions and you're like, okay, I know how to act. I know what to expect. Both of those, this is why when you travel internationally, one of the things that exhausts you outside of time travel, or time travel, time change, <laughs> not time travel. Uh, yes, outside of time change, I wish there was time travel, no. Um, is, is what happens is uh, you get someplace and you realize they have all these different traditions and it's really psychologically and emotionally overwhelming to you. I don't know when to eat, I don't know how to eat, I don't know how to dress, I don't know how to act, I don't know how to talk, I don't know how to... It's because you're in a total different culture with total different traditions. Now listen, here's the point of tradition, and this is one of the most important things I'm gonna say today for us to understand, because every church has traditions, we'll get into this. Every family has traditions. The point and purpose of tradition is to transfer truth. That's it, that's the whole point. The whole point of tradition is to transfer truth. The, the problem with tradition is when you have the tradition, but you've lost the truth. Like, I don't know if you ever heard of the story of that young couple that got married and the wife, she's excited about cooking a Christmas ham. And so she says to the husband, I'm gonna cook the Christmas ham. And he said, well, that's great. So she starts cooking the Christmas ham and she, right before she puts it in the pot to put it in the oven, she cuts off both sides of the ham. The husband says, what are you doing? He's thinking, my mom didn't ever cut off both sides of the ham. I said, is that, is that a cooking strategy? She said, no, this is just what my mom always did. So that's interesting. I'm gonna call you. you mind if I call your mom? She says, no, call my mom. Calls her mom up. Hey, it's our first Christmas. And you know, it's just interesting. Your daughter cut off both sides of the ham. Wondering why did, why did, she said she got that from you. Why do you do that? She says, oh, that's what my mom always did. He says, you mind if I, can I call grandma? I just got to get to the bottom of this. Calls grandma. Grandma, hey, <laughs> we're celebrating our first Christmas. It's real exciting. Uh, wife's making your famous ham dish. She's cutting both sides off of the ham right before she puts it in the pot. Heard that her mom did that because you did that. Why did you do that? She goes, because the pot was too small. <laughs> and I just explained tradition to you, <laughs> right? And that's such a great story because what's happened is so many times there was a reason we did things and we forgot it. This is the difference between tradition and traditionalism. If you want to ruin something, add an ism to the end of it, okay? Tradition, it's been famously said, is the living faith of the dead. And traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Let me say that again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Here's what tradition says. Think about it this way. I know this is a lot of stuff today. Tradition can either be a wise king or a tyrannical ruler. So here's what tradition normally says. People have been thinking about this for a long time and our ancestors were not stupid. And they probably thought about the Christian faith and how to do it and how to practice it a lot more seriously than any of us. And by the way, this is how they've passed it on to us. It's a wise king. 
Now, every once in a while, basically, the wise king says, this is the best way to do this, we think. But the tyrannical ruler says, this is the only way to do things, right? This is why the, right? traditionalism kills churches, right? They say the famous last words of a person are, hold my beer, this will only take a second, okay? <laughs> and they say the famous last words of churches are, this is how we've always done it. And so tradition is there, but it must be, it must be serve, serving truth. Let me give you a couple examples. So why do churches have steeples? We've forgotten these things, and we don't even do these things anymore. Churches had steeples because they used to be the tallest buildings in town because part of what a steeple does is it makes you look up to heaven, and part of what um, churches wanted to communicate, often you'd build the church as the tallest building in town because usually, as a general rule, whatever is the tallest building in town is what that city worships. Some of you go, that's why Charlotte, all the big buildings are the financial headquarters. I get it. People say, okay, well, why were there stained glass windows? So I don't get it. Why, why did they do that? Well, because most people were illiterate. That's why they were there. Because they didn't have screens. And they're trying to communicate stories to a mostly illiterate people. Why did ministers wear black robes? Well, this is a perfect example of how tradition and truth have what's happened with them, how they got, became untied. After the Protestant Reformation, ministers began to wear black robes and black linens to basically communicate to people, I'm just like you. I, I'm a sinner, I dress in black, I'm underneath the judgment of God apart from the grace of God. I'm more like you than not like you. But now what happens when you show up and you see some minister in a black dress? They feel more distant from you usually in our culture today. This is why we prefer the polo and the pants, okay? <laughs> this is the modern updated version to say I'm just like you. Um, and by the way, that's another thing. Two things we always have to do with tradition is we always have to explain them and we always have to update them. That, that, that's, that's, that's the way that you get out of traditionalism. So this is what we're always, Donovan just did this. Hey guys, this is why we sing today. Let me just tell you right now why we're doing what we're doing. And then we always update them. Hey, that tradition is no longer holding the truth like we thought it was in this new generation. So we need to hold to the same truth and we need to cover it or support it with the new tradition. Okay, so I want you to see this. So here's what happens. Go to verse five. Verse five says this. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition, there's that word again, of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Verse six. And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus looks at them and says, hey guys, you know that book, that book of Isaiah that you love to study and that you love to read and that you had to memorize and that you like to teach out of? Remember what, that whole part where he talks to people about being hypocrites? He's talking about you. <laughs> Yikes. Hypocrite, by the way, is Jesus' favorite phrase to use for religious people. He uses it, I believe, 26 times in the Gospels and I think 23 or 24 of those times he uses it specifically for the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And I want to talk about being a hypocrite for a second because what we're getting into now is the three dangers of traditionalism. Danger number one of traditionalism or tradition forget without forgetting the truth behind it. Danger number one is hypocrisy. And you think about that for a second. It makes sense, right? Because tradition's about the external. That's what it's about. Tradition's about the acting out of it. It's not about the inside. And so what can happen with tradition is you can learn all the traditions and not be changed on the inside. We try to talk about this all the time. By seven or eight years old, you can learn how to say you're praying for things when you're not. By, but by 10 years old, you know, how, you know the right answer mom and dad wanna hear from, about the Bible, about your life. You, by the time you're 15, you can talk about struggling with sin when you're given into sin. I mean, we can learn all the right words. And so hypocrisy, now let me explain what hypocrisy is because there's a, the younger generation tends to think hypocrisy is when I do something that I don't feel like doing. No, that's called being an adult, right? It's like, well, I don't feel like reading my Bible, but I'm gonna read it. I feel so hypocritical. No, that's called being mature. I don't feel like going to church, but I'm gonna go anyway. That's not being a hypocrite. That's called being a grown-up. And, and so what, what happens here is hypocrisy is when you're, you appear to be something on the outside and you're something different on the inside. Now, the, the literal word for it in the Greek is one who wears a mask. No, not a COVID-19 mask, different mask, okay, guys? 
a, a, a literal acting mask, okay? So who walks around, and so back then there were you know, shows and they had a few actors and the actors would wear different masks and it'd be like three people doing a whole show and they'd come out as one person with a mask and then another person with a mask and the whole point is you don't get to see the real person. And we have to talk about hypocrisy because hypocrisy is one, it's a big theme Jesus teaches. Two, it's a big accusation that the world has against the church. Have you noticed that? Or maybe people who've been in the church in the past, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. And when you can understand why people would think that, it depends on what they're reading and what news station they're watching and what social media they're following and I mean, there's a lot of Christians in the world, you know, and I think most Christians, and I think for the most part that I've met, most pastors, they're trying to live godly lives, they're trying to be consistent, they're trying to repent of known sin, they're trying to live lives of integrity, and every once in a while, somebody blows up or burns out, or we talked about that, and that makes the news, and then everybody's remembering the worst thing that person ever did, and a lot of non-Christians are rejoicing in their, their fall, and well, anyway, what happens with hypocrisy is when someone calls you a hypocrite, or calls the church hypocrites. I think the best response is to say, I know, we're trying. <laughs> we're trying to be humble hypocrites. We're trying to talk a lot about our weaknesses so that it's obvious that we know what they are. We're trying to talk a lot about our sins, so that's super obvious. We're trying to talk about all the places where what God says and how I'm acting and th the gospel gap that's in between that and how I'm embarrassed by that. And we talk a lot with our kids about that so that our kids know that mom and dad are, it's not about perfection, but it's about the direction of my life. But, but there's been a lot of hypocrisy in the church and the heart of some of the hypocrisy, not all of it, some of the hypocrisy has been the church holding to its traditions and not God's truth, right? I mean, the most classic example of this in the history of our nation would be slavery, segregation, Jim Crow laws. There was a season where the church, not every church, there were good churches, not every Christian, there were good Christians, not every pastor, there were good pastors, where a lot of people were saying, well, well, hold on a second, black people can sit in the church. Nope, not, that's not how it's been. Or no, no, black people have to sit in the balcony. I don't, I don't where's the black people have to sit in the balcony verse? This is how we've always done it. And a tradition that had no truth connected to it. Now the world looks at us and says hypocrisy. Jesus makes hypocrisy very personal. Let me show you what he does. Verse seven, he says this. This people, first, sorry, verse six. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, and this is so simple, you, you probably get this, but this was so profound when Jesus said it, that there's a difference between your lips and your life. That there's a difference between your heart and your hands. And what he's telling us is that there, you can do something externally and feel something completely different internally. And the best way to think about this is in our church, and I think Two Cities is a great church, but in our church, or let's even make it more personal for you. If you're in your community group, or you make it more personal, in your family, two people could show up and they could do the exact same thing from two completely different hearts, right? Like say a married couple shows up at Two Cities and they're, they're a great couple and they come to church. Let's say they're really godly and they go to Saturday night service. Something to pray about. Okay, um, so they show up to church. Okay, so husband and wife show up to church. Now, we don't know why they came. I mean, only they know, maybe they don't even know each other why they came. It's like, why did they come? Did they come because, you know, maybe we say one came because it's what we've always done and you grew up in Winston and it kind of feels weird not to go to church. And then the other person comes because they genuinely love God and they want to worship the Lord and they love to be with God's people and they're hoping to be edified and equipped and strengthened in their faith. It's like, well, I, I can't see by you walking through the door and sitting in the seat which one you are. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying two people can read their Bibles for completely different reasons. One, it can be a religious exercise. It could be to find an insight. It could make to be to make themselves feel good. It could be a checklist. And then the other person can read their Bible because they're reading the word of God because they want to know the God of the word. Two, two people can give. They could give the exact same amount of money percentage-wise. And one gives because they love the tax deduction or they love to watch themselves be a generous person. And the other person can give because generally they see God's the owner of everything and I wanna give God my first and my best and I'm genuinely excited about the forward advancement of the kingdom of God and I gotta invest in this. And you just, you cannot see the difference on the outside. Jesus is saying two people could refrain from sin for different reasons. People refrain from sin for all types of reasons. They don't wanna get caught. They don't wanna get fired. They don't wanna be embarrassed. Well, okay, that's one reason to, to refrain from sin. 
Another reason I refrain from sin is because I genuinely love God. And I realize that when I sin, it hinders my relationship with God. And I, and I view sin not as an escape to pleasure, but as an escape from pleasure. You can't tell. And so Jesus warns us first of the danger of hypocrisy. The second danger is legalism. Let's look here. The first danger was hypocrisy. The second danger is legalism. Look at me at verse 9. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way, look at this, of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. There it is again, the written commands versus the oral tradition. Uh, it, actually, I don't have time to get into this. If you look earlier, he actually says, first, you teach your own thoughts. He says, secondly, you leave God's command. And now we've gotten to the third kind of slippery slope of you reject. So when I talk about legalism, it's kind of a technical thing again. There are different types of legalism, many types of legalism that theologians have talked about. The, the three main are legalism is, legalism number one is I try to earn my way to God. That's not what this is talking about. That's what Paul's talking about in the book of Galatians. Uh, the other is uh, I add to God's word a bunch of things it doesn't say. That's what Paul, Jesus was talking about a little bit earlier. That's not what this is talking about. He's saying that this is actually a third type of legalism. It's where you reject God's word and replace it with your words instead. What's interesting is everybody, because I believe because we were created to be commanded. I mean, it's like the first thing that happens to us. Like we're in the garden, we wake up, Adam and Eve's like, God's like, hello, be fruitful, multiply. Don't eat from this tree. It's like, oh, I was created to be commanded. So when I reject God's word, this is what the world does. When the world rejects God's word, it replaces it. What does it replace itself with? Well, normally today, it usually replaces itself with whatever society says. Right, and so public opinion on every moral issue is always changing, and every career politician is trying to refigure out what their new platform is going to be because of what's happened in the culture. It's because we've rejected God's command, but we've always we we always have replaced with something else. So it's what society and cultural norms. Some people, it's just the self, right? It's like I I just could never believe in a God who. It's like who made you the final arbiter? Something doesn't exist. Or is it right because you can't believe it? But that's what's happened is we've, we've taken our feelings and our emotions and our experiences and we've made them, we've replaced them and uh, we've rejected God's word and replaced it. But in the church, we're more sophisticated than that. We wouldn't want to do that. We wouldn't want to outright reject God's word. What we tend to do in the church is we're tending to look to somebody else or somewhere else to tell us what we're doing is okay. Is there a podcast that will tell me it's okay? Is there a YouTube channel that will tell me that's okay? Is there a book that will tell me it's okay? Is there a church that will tell me it's okay? And it's 2022, so the answer is yes. <laughs> there will be a book. There will be something that will tell you it's okay. I want you to look at what they did here. I want you to see this. It's very interesting. Look at me at verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. So that's the written scriptures. That's the written command of God. And whoever reviles a father or mother must surely die. But you say, so here's the world tradition. If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, and again, uh, Mark's going to explain this, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void or irrelevant the word of God by your tradition, there's that word again, that you have handed down and many such things you do. So let me explain this. The Bible says honor your parents, which is different than obey your parents. When you're under your parents' authority, you obey them. When you're in their house, when you're under their home, when they're, when they're paying for everything, okay? It's like then you have, the language in the Bible is that of obedience. As long as they're telling you not to sin. It's like, I may not understand everything. I may not agree with everything. But my job when I'm under the home of my parents is to obey them. But then eventually you move out and you get a job and you start your own family or you buy your own house and you have your own job and you don't continue to, from a distance, try to obey your parents, but you always honor them. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Honor goes up, blessing comes down. Honoring your parents is primarily three ways. How you talk to them. Some of you go, okay, I need to work on that. Okay. <laughs> how you talk about them. So that's how you talk to them, to other people, or about them to other people. And then it's how you take care of them when they get old, which we've completely forgot as a society and as a culture. The Jews never forgot this. To this day, they say the Jewish people are the absolute best at taking care of their elderly. It's like in the collective conscience. Uh, the way it works is that they took care of you when you're young and you will take care of them when they get old. Now, we're not putting down traditions and rules on exactly how this has to happen. But what happened here is they found a way around taking care of their parents. I, I was at a nursing home not that long ago and 
talking to some people there and found out some sad stories of some people who were tricked in by their kids to signing over everything to their kids, and then they were put in a nursing home while their kids spend their inheritance early. We're not saying it's a sin to put someone in a nursing home. We're saying it is a sin to put your parents in a nursing home in a way that dishonors them. A couple of people were telling me no one ever visits them. They just let them there to die for the last 15 years. They did something very sophisticated. They had Corban. You ever heard of Corban? I had never heard of it. We don't talk about that today. Corban was this way to say, okay, my cryptocurrency and my stocks and my property and my possessions and my car and my 401k and my Roth IRA and all of it is Corban. You go, what's Corban? It's the way, it was this oral tradition where they say, I devote it to God, which sounds very spiritual. And what you do is you would basically, you devoted it to God and then the, the church or the synagogue got it when you died. It was estate planning. But it was a very sophisticated type of estate planning because there was a loophole in it, which the loophole was, okay, I devote it to God so I don't have to do, no one else can have it. And I can do whatever I want with it until I die. If I want to spend it on me, it's fine. But when I die, it's devoted to God. I think we learned two things here. I think we learned that true religion shows up in our finances, right? That's what this was. This was property, possessions, money, finances. And, and so we don't have Corban, right? But everybody kind of has their own little traditions of why they're not as generous as they could be. Well, I can't be generous till we get out of debt. It's like, what do you mean? School debt? Car debt? Mortgage debt? If we're not a mortgage, it's going to be a long time. <laughs> well, I, I can't give until I make X amount of money. I, I can't give until I save this much each month. We have our own rules. That we don't, I'm not saying we tell everyone else. We tell ourselves it partly because we're moral and so we have to even justify our own behavior to ourselves. But here's the second thing I think is a bigger deal. The Pharisees and the scribes were looking for a loophole instead of grace. How about your life? I mean, where are you looking for a loophole instead of God's grace? I mean, it could be a sin you need to repent of. It could be an area you need to be generous. It could be a relationship you need to reconcile and forgive. And how many times we're looking for a way around it, loophole, instead of grace to go through it. We're just looking. There's got to be a verse here that says it's okay to drink too much. There's got to be a verse here. Like There's got to be a category or a story so that I don't feel bad about not being generous. There's got to be, on, the, on this command about sexual sin, there's got to be an asterisk. And when I turn to the back of the Bible, there's a picture of me. It says, I'm the exception. That's, I mean, it sounds silly when we say it like that, but instead of saying, God, you know what? It's gonna be very hard. I'm not looking for a loophole. I'm looking for grace. I'm looking for a way to confess this. I'm looking for a way to get help. I'm looking for a way out. Through, with, with you helping me, I'm looking for the ability to be generous. I'm not trying to tell myself that I don't need to forgive this person. I'm, I'm trying to find the grace to forgive this person. That's different. Which leads to the third danger of traditionalism. Traditionalism, danger number one, hypocrisy, because it's about the external, not the internal. Danger two, it's about legalism, because it's about replacing God's word with what you think and others have said. And third, it's about never really getting changed on the inside. Let me show you. Here's what it says in verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus ends by talking about this interesting idea. I don't know where you'll hear this outside of church. He talks to us about a theology of defilement. When was the last time you thought about that? <laughs> he talks to us about a theology of purity, the same thing. He's talking to us about a theology of cleanliness, spiritually, morally, which sounds foreign to us. And the first thing he says is, hey guys, and it sounds so simple, and again, we read it, and he says something this simple, hey guys, uh, what you eat can't make you unclean. And he gives kind of just a general, he goes, basically goes in your mouth and through your stomach and out the other end, and you know, <laughs> so he basically says. 
And he just says, and his whole point is it doesn't touch your heart. Now, here's what's interesting. I think it was Don Carson who said, the more a society becomes morally bankrupt, the more it becomes obsessed with what it eats. We're not sure what the connection is. Because we read this and we go, oh, how silly. <laughs> they thought they, if they ate certain things, that they would be defiled. And some of you are like, I can't eat non-GMO. My eggs need to be conflict-free, cage-free, pasture-raised, whatever all this stuff means, right? You go to the store, honey, sorry, they've got four labels. They don't have the fifth. We can't get these, right? It's like, look, I grew up on Pop-Tarts and toaster strudels, and I turned out just fine, I think. But here's the serious, we are obsessed. We are obsessed with what we eat today, which is an interesting, it tells us something about I don't know, I don't fully have it figured out. It tells us something about our moral condition when a society becomes overly obsessed with what it eats. I think the average American would be more ashamed to be caught with a bag of McDonald's than to be caught looking at pornography. And so Jesus is telling us that there's nothing that goes inside of us that can defile us. It could be healthy or not healthy for you, it could affect your body, you know. But he's, not, he's, he's saying, it doesn't, if you eat trans fats, you'll be fine spiritually. He's saying it's what's inside of us that defiles us. Now, this is very interesting because uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt, uh, professor at NYU, secular Jew, very well-educated, not a Christian, written several books. The Coddling of the American Mind is his most recent New York Times bestseller. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, and he writes about, very interesting, try to follow this for a minute. He writes about morality in the West, really writes about morality in the world, but he focuses on morality in the West. And he said, there are five components to morality, three of which Americans have forgotten. He said, the first component of morality that Americans still get is harm. Right, you've heard that. Like, well, I shouldn't hurt you and you shouldn't hurt me. And if it doesn't hurt you and it doesn't hurt me, then it's okay. But we get harm. Maybe we're obsessed with harm. Maybe we think things are harmful that aren't harmful. I mean, who knows? But we're, harm's a big category. Second big category. Fairness or reciprocity. I should treat you how I'd want to be treated. It's the golden rule. And you should treat me how you'd want to be treated. And if you do something for me, I should do something back for you. And maybe some version of eye for eye. And we, we get that. He said, what's the other three we forgot? The other three are authority, loyalty, and purity. Authority is, as a general rule, I should obey the person in charge. And it is wrong to go against authority. He lost that in the West. There's a whole category of morality that flows from the morality of authority, which we've lost. He said the other category is loyalty, and loyalty is I should really honor my family. And it matters where I came from. And I need to be a part of a community. He said, well, in our transient way, we've completely lost that. And he said the third one we've lost the most, the final fifth one we've lost the most of the three that we don't care about anymore. And he said it's purity. And he did an interesting study, and sorry, this will be a little bit crude, but this is what they did. He said they went around and they asked a bunch of very secular people this question about purity. They said if a sister and a brother are on vacation together and they're adults and they're not married to anyone else, they're over 18 years old, and they decide on vacation to have a sexual relationship, is that okay? They said, well, you know, they're not married to anyone else. They didn't cheat on anyone else. It was completely mutual. They just did it a couple times. It's over. Is it okay? They said most people said yes. Because you have to understand the modern mind has no category outside of did it hurt someone and was it mutually reciprocal? Jesus talks about a theology of defilement located in the heart. Look at verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within, out of the heart, that's the seat, sum, and center of you. Uh, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus talks about the heart. And he talks pretty directly about the heart, you know. It was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsky, um, from, he was in the gulags uh, during the Soviet Union. He's experienced a lot of terrible things under Stalin. Uh, but he wrote while he was in the gulags, um, the gulag archipelago and many other things. But anyway, he, he, one of the things he said is he said they, what he noticed by dealing with 
all different types of people is that good and evil runs right down the center of every human heart. And every day it's a choice of whether I'm going to do something good or I'm going to do something evil. Here's what this means. Let me just tell you practically. Eh, I don't know how else to say this. I want to say this winsomely but directly. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're not a victim. We believe in victims. Yes, there are victims. We listen to victims. We care for victims. But most people in America have a victim mentality. The victim mentality is, it happened to me and I couldn't help it. Something happened, like, I'm not talking about sin, I'm talking about people think the problem, here's another way to say it, people think the problem is on the outside. It's my boss. That's the problem in my life right now. I'm a victim. It's my spouse, he's not very attractive. It's my wife, she's not very sexually available. That's, what, that's the problem. It's my job, it's not very satisfying. Or if, you get, if you're a college student, you start thinking the problems are even bigger. It's capitalism! Really? It's the environment and climate change. Really? That's the big problem? It's our democratic republic. That's the problem. It's like, no, Jesus tells us, look inside if you want to see the problem. The problem is not that you were bullied in fourth grade. The problem is not that your dad hugged you or didn't hug you. Because guess what? There's a lot of people who are bullied in fourth grade and didn't turn out like you. Because we choose how we respond. The heart is not neutral. And you need to take responsibility for your heart and the actions that it does. Now, you can look there. It says, okay, so it says, uh, I got to go over these quickly, but it says there's four categories. First of all, there's evil thoughts. A definition of evil, evil is always creative. That's the definition of evil. It's creative. When someone does something evil against you, what will hurt most is they thought about it. What will hurt most is they knew what they were doing. And some of you, you just need to know that all of your evil thoughts or all, all of the evil in your life will start with your thoughts. And it usually starts with how can I creatively lie about this or how can I creatively plan this? Secondly, you can see the category of sexuality. Sexual immorality is mentioned in every vice list in scripture and almost every time it's mentioned first or second. Here we get two words, uh, sexual morality, porneo, or we get the word pornography from, and the word sensuality. The third category is relationship with other people. You can see that category. He says envy and strife and slander and coveting, and it's the compare, compete, conquer culture that we create. And then finally, he says pride and folly, which are the junk drawers. Pride is, I only think about myself. I'm first and foremost in my thoughts. And the fool is not, the fool is not someone who's not intelligent. The fool is a moral moron. That's what the fool is. And so he ends with all of this, and what Jesus is trying to show us, and he's pointing, all of this is pointing us to the cross. Jesus is trying to tell us this. What you've been told is a lie. All your life you've been told the problem is outside of you and the solution's inside of you. I promise, you go to any school, you go to any place, they're gonna tell you the problem is outside of you. It's your husband, it's your kids, it's your job, it's your wife, and the solution's inside of you. Just look and just listen to your heart, right? I mean, that's... It's the opposite of what the Bible says. It'll tell you to, the problem is outside of you, the solution is inside. Jesus says the exact same, the exact opposite. He says the problem is inside of you and the solution is outside of you. G.K. Chesterton, famous Christian writer, theologian, uh, years ago, they, in some news agency or radio agency, they, they wrote an article and they were asking all the politicians and the leaders of nonprofits and the CEOs and the celebrities, they asked them the question, what's wrong with the world? And they got like dissertations back. This is what's wrong, this is what's wrong. The shortest answer they got to the question, what's wrong with the world, they got from G.K. Chesterton. It was only two words and it said, I am. So what, what's wrong with the world? Me. What's wrong with the world? You. And so Jesus comes and he doesn't say tradition's bad. He says tradition can go bad. He, he doesn't come and he doesn't say, okay, you don't need to be cleaned. He's saying, you don't know how to clean yourself. That you actually need to be cleaned, not from the outside in. That was his critique of the Pharisees. You're a whitewashed tomb. You clean the outside of the cup. You don't clean the inside. His idea is you have to be cleaned from the inside out. Well, that's a miracle. That, that only happens through faith in Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ comes into, the Bible talks about Christ coming into your life, coming into your heart and cleansing you. Because here's what sin does. Sin does three things to you. Sin makes you guilty, right? This is why your conscience condemns you. This is why you wake up at three in the morning. 
This is why you lie about things. You, you know you're wrong, you know you're guilty. It's okay, sin makes you guilty. Sin makes you broken. <laughs> yep, my, I, things don't work. My life doesn't work the way I thought it would. Okay, well, <laughs> you're guilty, so you need to be forgiven. Sin breaks you, so you need to be healed. And sin makes you dirty and defiled, so you need to be clean. And Jesus came as the answer to Ezekiel's prophecy. I wanna read you this as we close. In Ezekiel, God made a promise that one day I'm going to come and I'm going to do the inside out work of cleaning. Cleaning cannot happen from the outside in. It has to happen from the inside out because the problem's within. Look what, look what uh, God says in Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And then he summarizes it by saying this, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. That's why Jesus Christ came. The only thing you have to do to be clean by Jesus Christ is to admit you can't be clean and to ask him to clean you. Instead of trying to clean yourself and cover up yourself, right? This is what our first parents did. They tried to hide behind a bush to hide their uncleanliness, didn't work. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, right? Didn't work. You need to come clean so God can clean you. But two other things I just wanna say as we close culturally for our church. And I read pastors like this, I always think, God, how do we not become like the Pharisees and the scribes? Because it's the temptation of every church. There's two commitments that we're recommitting to today as a church and I'm recommitting to you. Number one is that we are always going to be about true spirituality here at Two Cities, not about pretend righteousness. We are going to as much as we can, we can't see the inside of you, I can only see the inside of me. We're gonna focus as much as we can on the inner man and the inner woman, not the external conformity. And the second thing that we're recommitting to today is to make the plain things in scripture the main things and to make the main things the plain things. Part of what religiosity and traditionalism and all that happens when you start having all these secondary and tertiary issues. We wanna have a church where people say, I love it when you talk about Jesus. I love it when you talk about the cross. I love it when you talk about being saved from God's wrath. I love it when you talk about, you know, Kyle, just give us another sermon on sin and grace. Because we wanna see people come to faith in Christ, have their lives transformed, be sent out on mission. What we're about here is making and mobilizing disciples and doing it all in an environment of prayer and worship. So let's end by praying together. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up wherever we are, each of our stories. And the truth is we each came here today doing the exact same external tradition. We got in our car and we came to church. And we sat down and we sang songs and we listened to a sermon. But there are hundreds and hundreds of different hearts in this room. Why we came, how we're responding, what we're going through, what we're believing, what we're feeling. And I just pray for each person that you would do a great work in us internally, Lord. Help us to avoid the dangers of traditionalism, Lord, and realize the good traditions and the truth they hold. Lord, I pray against the dangers of tradition. I pray against any hypocrisy where there needs to be humility, where there needs to be confession, where there needs to be repentance, I pray that it would happen. Lord, I pray we would not be a church that rejects your word and replaces it with something else, but we would be a church that lives under your word. Lord, and I, I pray, Lord, that we would be a place where people all over our city come to find the cleansing they can only find in Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.